Welcome to the Art and Science of Difficult Conversations. I'm Chris. And I'm Lucy, and we love having difficult conversations. That's right. And each week, we'll either share a tip, hear how others have gotten better at difficult conversations, or demonstrate common difficult conversations and what to do and what not to do. Let's get into it. Hey, y'all. Before we get started, I wanted to just do a little bit of intro. Today's podcast episode has a few discussions about abuse, suicide. So I want to just prepare you for that. So if, if that's not your cup of tea or if that's triggering for you, please feel free to skip to the end. But I just wanted to be clear because we're going to be talking about really sensitive topics in the interest of thinking about how do we use our own story in conversations? How do we have a difficult conversation even with ourselves to be able to share with others? Otherwise, I'll see you in the episode. Today, I'm excited to have a friend of mine on, uh, and she is just an amazing woman, amazing person that I've known because she's been such a, a huge, outspoken activist for mental health and disability rights, as well as, a, as an artist herself, and she's teaching, and I've known her through her work also working with uh, unhoused populations, uh, and she's just an amazing person, and, I, and I've enjoyed our friendship together, so... I'd love to welcome Heidi. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm really glad to be here. Um, interestingly, this is like my third or fourth Zoom meeting of the day. And so it's kind of like I'm feeling a little bit energized by all of it. because It's been kind of a similar theme about difficult topics. Mm. And um, yeah, I, let me just start off by saying that I did not grow up with any kind of encouragement to talk about difficult things. Mm. <laughs> Nor I would guess a lot of people with my similar backgrounds. Um, I, you know, when I came to this country at about six and a half, um, essentially, you know, pretty conservative family, you know, like as far as a lot of Korean families have immigrated in the mid 80s, I think that the goal was survival. And um, I wouldn't even say prosperity at that point, it's just survival. Um, I would say that my parents were lucky in the sense, I mean, they were privileged in the sense that they weren't coming here as refugees. They came here because, you know, essentially, I think they, my father, who has always been more of a progressive, saw that my learning, um, I wouldn't call it disability, learning differences did not fit in with the Korean way of education, right? Mm -hmm. Of teaching their students around memorization, um, testing, and all that compliance um so i would say that my dad when he had the option to explore i mean he's also always been an adventurer so we came to this country in 85 and he just wanted to just see beyond the horizon you know and then um also wanted better opportunity for me to be able to not get punished all the time because mm. i was constantly punished in first grade brought up to the front of the class shown as example for not what what not to do to the other first graders um and you know nowadays they don't do that kind of corporate punishment anymore but um i would say that back then it was shame game all the way and when we came to this country i think that i didn't expect because i was a very confident six-year-old um to have experienced as much of a culture shock that i did I didn't speak for three years until I, um, from the time I came to what essentially was New York, Queens, to, you know, until, you know, a year and a half later, we, you know, moved to Boston and then another year and a half. So three years, I didn't speak. And I think a lot of the teachers thought that I couldn't understand 
English and therefore didn't speak it mm-hmm. and more of a trauma response. And back then, they didn't really think about that kind of thing in the ESL room, you know? So um, essentially, I sort of came to this country, you know, being told from the very beginning that I was not very intelligent and that also I was different. Mm-hmm. And different back then wasn't a good different, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. I would say that racial discrimination, bullying, um, and the on playground, the classroom was alive and well. And I was very much the sensitive type, so kind of internalized. And I went from a very, very confident child to a very like inward child. Mm. Uh, must have been my fault type of thing. And I think that over the years, um, so we lived mostly in Massachusetts, and I think that, again, survival. My parents went from my dad getting a law degree, my mom having a chemistry degree from pretty prominent universities in Korea to washing people's clothes here in the U.S. for a good several decades and um, essentially just wanting to have enough funds to just help pay, pay for college, you know, in this country. And so... Um, I would say that they weren't really aware of our emotional needs. Yeah. It wasn't on their radar. So when I showed signs, very obvious signs that I was not doing well, their questions, they, there were no questions, first of all. It wasn't like, what's going on? What happened to you? It was kind of like, wh- like, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's the question, but what's wrong with you as opposed to what happened to you? Yeah from the age of 11 to yeah 14 and a half I would say the deacon of my church at the time um you know kind of told me I was special we had a very you know that the marriage was on the horizon of course as an 11 year old you don't think that a 30 something year old man with kids is going to actually leave his family and marry you one day that him having sex with you is not really something that is like you know it's not really love, but in my mind, I didn't quite think that, right? So I think I had a very warped view of love from the very beginning. And also because my parents really did not have the time of day for me, not because they didn't love me, but because they were constantly busy washing people's clothes. And right, right. they really just came home at insane hours of the day. Um, and I remember distinctly just like coming home one day in third grade and the key fell off my neck. And I couldn't get in. And my brother was with, I think, with family. And I'm not sure exactly what what was the case because he's three and a half half years younger than me. But he wasn't with me at the time. Um, My mom was going through cancer through various periods of my childhood. So it could have been that he was with my aunt. But anyhow, I came home and it was maybe 2.30. It was like in the dead of winter, very cold outside. Um, I realized that I could not get into my own home. Latchkey kid, right? So... Mm -hmm. Like 4.30, 5.30, by that time I had to go to the bathroom and such. Um, and we were living in Ashland, which is a predominantly white town at the time. And, you know, I was crying because I couldn't get in. My parents weren't going to come home until 11 p.m. So I knew I had to figure out things for myself. And I remember the neighbors just kind of looking down their, their you know, what is it called? The blinds? Oh, yeah. Hearing a child crying and not really thinking about opening the door or helping out. And there were two other neighbors who did the same. And by the time it came 10 p.m., and I was lucky because my mom came home early that day. And I nearly had hypothermia from being outside in the cold for that long. And my mom was horrified in tears because she, you know, obviously. So 
those kinds of things are very much a regular occurrence, like not that specific type of thing, but just kind of being invisible, just sort of flying under the radar, just trying to survive, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And talking about uncomfortable things wasn't even you know, even a thing because we were so busy surviving. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how to not hate myself from all the stuff that I was processing in my head, um, from the bullying to all the teachers sort of seeing me as invisible because I was very quiet. They just figured that I was very introverted and shy and yeah. not. Yeah. And I think that um, it wasn't until probably end of high school when I... So by by the end of senior year, I had attempted suicide three times, right? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really passionate about a lot of things at that point, but I was pretty passionate about trying to get out. I was like, I don't want in this. So essentially, um, what happened is that my friend who really pursued me in friendship, um, she happened to be a diehard Christian. And mind you, my parents really were like more Buddhist and atheist more than anything else. Um, Because that violent teacher I told you about, he also happened to be Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. And um, he really believed that my mom, who had a severe, uh, well, she had colon cancer and she needed a blood transfusion at one point. Now, if you know, Jehovah's Witnesses really do not believe in blood transfusion. So they basically told uh, my violent teacher and the, the Jehovah's Witness church we were part of told my father, well, she will die in this life and she'll be resurrected again the next life. And my dad, thankfully, was not such a strong Jehovah's Witness believer at that point. Um, and was kind of like, well, hell with that. Sorry. Well, heck with that. I'm not going to really you know, I want her here in this life. So essentially he gave her the blood blood transfusion and the Jehovah's Witness Church rejected us. Mm. Well, previous to that, the Christian church rejected us because they were like, you're a cult because Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. Mm. So it's kind of like, that's kind of the history behind when my parents were like very anti-Christian or anti-religion. And so fast forwarding to like, yeah, like me being friends with a Christian in senior year of high school was kind of a big deal because I was also very anti-religion, um, probably because of my deacon violent teacher person who sure, sure. seemingly was a leader in the church and should have been not doing that kind of thing. But um, yeah, she was really, really persistent. And I'm not sure why to this day. I really thought she was like joshing me because I'm like, she's a valedictorian of her class. She's popular. Why would she want to be friends with me? Someone who is off, obviously not liking life at all and is hanging out with the goth kids, you know? And she really was like, just like, let's go to, you know, double date to the prom together, that type of thing. I'm just like, oh my gosh, she's like really annoying me now. And she really kept at it. And at one point I just kind of gave up and we did actually double date to the prom. Um, it's so funny because um, she really changed my life. I wrote my senior college sort of like thesis on her because um, I really didn't think that my heart could be transformed. Um, I mean, there are many points in our life where I feel like we sort of go through life transformation and she was kind of one of those stones that built that, you know, foundation for me, I guess you say. So going back to your question, um, yeah, I did not grow up with difficult conversation because life itself was difficult um we don't need to process it um you know my parents are very non-emotional they're very much thinkers not feelers 
and they just so happened to have this like freak feeler. (laughs) And um, my brother also was very much a thinker, you know, and I will say to this day, even we don't have conversations. Um, Definitely no more than weather and children, you know, my parents' grandchildren. So um, I will say that I've drawn boundaries about having uncomfortable conversations that diss on your spouse because he doesn't have net worth, that type of discussion. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I'm like, I hold my mom hostage. I'm like, you talk to my husband that way, you don't get access to your grandkids. And that's so mean, yeah. I know, that's so mean, but I have to do it sometimes because she gets nasty. Right, but right. anyhow, I do love her. Um, I think the point where I got to be able to find who I am again um, was actually in the midst of the pandemic. Oh, interesting. When um, everybody was going through a lot of hardship. I was too. I would definitely say just like everyone else, I went through my phase of depression. And it's kind of weird, you know, like when you get pregnant and you're like going through like the evals, if you have had postpartum depression in the past and you have other children in the future, you get screened for it because you have higher chances of. So it's kind of like that because I knew the pandemic was kind of like happening. I'm prone to depression. It's probably likely to happen. I think I was a little bit more prepared for it. Not to say that it was easier going through it, because um, I definitely, for, for me, when I'm depressed, it's not like, God, I don't feel like getting out of bed. It's usually more like, I need to, I need to not be here. I, I, I need to act now. It's usually like extreme, one or the other. There's very little in between for me. And so, um, and it usually goes along with, um, you know, hallucinations of sorts. Um, hearing things, seeing things that really like emphasize that point. So, um, I think that, you know, I was, you know, after a period of time, I think I just got really tired of thinking about hard discussions in my own head by myself. And of course, I had peers, meaning like people who have also lived experience with mental health conditions and other things, um, you know, substance use, like just conversing with them. And we were on the same page, but it's kind of like, you can only get so far as systemic change talking to the choir, you yeah. know what I mean? So, right. Um, yeah, I think that during the pandemic, after I got through my, you know, I call it a blip, not that it wasn't serious, but it didn't make me go to the hospital. So, and mind you, I've been to the hospital, like section 12, like nine times. So, you know, I think that though anything that doesn't cause that kind of level of severity, I call it a blip (laughs) or like what my mentor calls a flare up, you know? So, um, Essentially, I think I got into that. I don't know if you saw the movie Melancholia. Um, I haven't seen it. I know that, I know of it. I never saw it. Okay, you should see it. It's interesting. It has a lot of beautiful visuals. Um, that's primarily why I saw it, not because it's called Melancholia. But you know, there's an actress. I'm not crazy about her, but Kristen Dunst. Maybe she's like kind of the, oh, yeah, the depressed. Dunst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, she's the depressed sister. There is the competent older sister who marries a very well-to-do scientist, astronomist type of dude, maybe. And just essentially, um, you know, he knows what's going to happen to the earth. He's in control. He knows all. And his wife is just kind of living the life in this ginormous mansion with her husband and um, son. And, you know, probably the son was maybe about five or six or something like that. And the sister is always the one taken care of by the older sister 
And I, I bring that movie up because I almost feel like sometimes you go through like, I don't know if it was we call an apocalypse where essentially like the planets were colliding, right? Oh, sorry. I was just giving away the movie. Sorry about that. Anyway, okay. like it's essentially like everybody's in crisis mode and the one who's always needed the help, who couldn't even bathe herself um, without her sister's help because of her depression sort of comes to and becomes the heroine of her sister and others who were kind of the ones who had it together. Mm. And, and I'm not just saying that saying in any way that those who struggle with mental health conditions really like thrived and did well during the pandemic. But I think that my example, I want to prove the point that a lot of people with mental health conditions are seen as those always needing help. Mm. And sometimes during harder conditions, I think we sort of dismiss the fact that we have been coping and we have been surviving for most of our existence and managing yeah. our condition. It takes so much effort. And I think that um, there are times when we sort of come to, you know, and I, for me, it was that moment where I just kind of realized, and mind you, I've been teaching in the classroom for 15 years in Boston, setting up, you know, I set up, you know, program up in Ujungbu um, in South Korea at an international school and then set up another school here in Hyde Park. And I was teaching there, establishing the visual arts program for about 10 years. And so I had been a teacher and I think that it was a job that I felt my parents sort of wanted me to pursue. And not that I didn't want to do it and I thought there wasn't good food from it, um, but and I noticed the kids who really were struggling with self-confidence, the kids who were being bullied, all those things are like very much on my mind. And that was what I enjoyed the most about teaching is like being, it's like after school is over, those kids would come to the art classroom and make art. You right. know what I mean? Right. And we would get into these conversations. They wouldn't talk about stuff, but they would imply stuff or like you just get a sense, an unspoken kind of understanding, if you know what I mean. So um, I think that I sort of took a mental note of that. Like, it's not like I hated teaching. It's just like thinking in the linear way for a dyslexic person is hard. It like it hurts your brain to like plan mm, and yeah. to like think sequence from beginning to end. <laughs> so um, I think that when I sort of got essentially like encouraged to leave because I was in the hospital too long, for my mental health condition. Uh, and this was in 2010 when I was so severely depressed. You know, I, I'd just been kind of like newly married. I had things to live for, but my brain was sort of working against me. You know, it did not want me to live. And all of the past stuff kept coming back over and over. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, with, with complex PTSD, it's hard to shut those images and right, memories right. and cells and everything off. Um, so I would say that you know, in the pandemic, I think I sort of saw an opportunity to like change professions in a way. And mind you, I'd already been sort of in the homeless community because I was directing an art program for the homeless for about seven years in Boston right. called Common Art. And that when you came as a speaker one day for one of our little programs there. And um, yeah, I think that um, essentially I got a taste again of like what really brought out something in me that felt right if you know what I mean it felt like I should be you know I should be an obedient daughter and still remain a teacher and have that pension and security for myself mm 
I knew they didn't come all the way to this country so that I could do some kind of thing that I want to do with no pay, you know? Yeah. But it, like, I guess I, I did have the luxury at that point and not that I had the financial luxury, but it was more like I felt that I, ha I had to do it. I had to at least try it. And within the pandemic, because everything was thrown off, everybody's lives were thrown off. I thought, well, here's my chance. And so I, I decided to go for training as a certified peer specialist. And, you know, I was without childcare like most parents, but because this training was for the first time being offered over Zoom, yeah, all 65 hours of it, um, I was like, I, I hate Zoom, but honestly, like, I have to do it because I can do childcare while training, right. you know? Incredible, yeah. And that's a luxury that not all parents have. So I finished the training and, you know, essentially, and, and what a certified peer specialist is, is um, how do you describe it? Because, you know, honestly, I don't even think that a lot of social workers or even like um, clinicians that I've worked with, even at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, really knew what that was. And the way that I describe it is um, someone who has been in your shoes is essentially walking you through a system that is highly dysfunctional, in this case, the healthcare, mental health care system. Yep. And the way that you, you creatively problem, I don't even say creatively, but I would say the way that you solve a problem um, and there are many complex problems in the healthcare system, uh, as well as not just um, negligent problems, but like blatant discrimination problems, right? We won't go into it, but I'll say that the way that you solve those problems for yourself versus the way you're solving it for your client or your patient is very different. And I, the way that I see it as a peer is because I've solved it for myself, and usually when you solve a problem for yourself, it, it's different in the sense that, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but I will say that having been through the mental health care system, having to access some of the resources that are out there for me um, that are accessible, not just not just there for everyone with means, um, you learn to find loopholes. You learn to speak a certain language to qualify under insurance. Sure. And I'm not talking about lying or breaking laws. I'm talking about saying the right thing so that people are like, ah, I see your pain or your condition is legitimate. Yeah. We will cover you. Um, not all patients know that. Certainly not ones who are struggling with homelessness, trauma, um, substance use, just barely getting by, survival, you know? Like people don't typically talk to other people like, hey, how did you get coverage for this? Or how did you get mm -hmm. that resource? Mm -hmm. You know, you would think that people have the, the networks and the connections, but actually um, when people are in survival, it kind of by the, by the very nature of having to be in survival and the structure of, I don't want to call it the system, but those in positions of power don't really want you to be talking to each other either. So it's not really highly promoted. So a lot of the people with the keys and that could be, social workers or PCPs or others, and not to down any of them because they do great work as well, but sometimes they're the haves and haves nots in the healthcare system, sure, you know, sure. and what I've learned is that, um, yeah, essentially as a peer, I learned at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless how to navigate the system, um, not just for myself, but for them. And that's how I've learned how to advocate for myself and to be an activist, mm. not because I'm really good at fighting, or because I'm good at advocating, but because um, when I was in survival, I couldn't do it for myself, but they taught me how to do it for them. Mm -hmm. um, and that I was good at. 
advocating and fighting for other people, I found like a lot of survivors, they're very good at kind of like a lot of moms who are kind of like good at doing things for their kids and their spouses and their friends. And they're like, it's kind of harder to do it for yourself. And it could be partially like you just sometimes, at least for me, I'll say it was like, I wasn't sure that I was worthy of it or deserved it. Um, You know, even though my confidence is nowhere near rock bottom as it used to be, I would say that it's always a battle for me. And because it's like when you teach it enough to someone else, sometimes you pick it up for yourself. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an incredible story, Heidi. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled that you even w- were willing to share that with me. I'm wondering, you know, when you had those, the, you know, your history of the the attempts and uh, and the self harm, how did your parents ever talk about it, or did they just totally ignore it? You know, the thing is that a lot of people who self-harm, they, I think they're not really thinking, I want help, I want attention. Not all. So maybe some, but not all. I would say for me, it was a way to feel again. I couldn't feel because I had numbed myself so much. And I, I, some of it, there was a period where I was addicted. I got hold of, oh my God, I don't think my parents even know. Like one of my friends, his mom had a back surgery and, you know, you get a hold of something and then you're just like not even sure what you're taking and then you don't realize the power of it. But anyway, I think very early on, I had been semi-aware of the power of painkillers, you know? And my first attempt was essentially an entire large bottle of extra strength Tylenol. And, um sadly i guess my body doesn't really take it well even to this day i I have a hard time just throwing up Mm -hmm. i mean sometimes when you swallow something you know that it's like ah that's spoiled food and you want to like throw it up like my body just doesn't do that and in this particular case my body threw it up because i had consumed so much of it and i think it's kind of like mercy of god he was like nope you're not your time's not up yet (laughs) because i honestly don't know like i can count the number of times i've been able to throw up things and you know, not to dwell on this, but it was just like something that told me like, this is just not going to happen and just clean it up done. You don't talk about it. You know what I mean? Mm. Like there's no reason to tell the parents because it'll only bring more anxiety and stress for them. And then more stress on you. There's no safety in sharing it. So why share it? So, um, I think the other couple of times, um, the, the second time was also an overdose and I think that for me, it was never so much I wanted to die. It was really more, I hated being a burden. Mm-hmm. I hated being such a disappointment. I mean, essentially, it's like my mom graduated the valedictorian of her class, went to the Wellesley of, her, of Korea. And so it's like, I'm like failing out of you know school. And it's kind of like, yeah, you feel like your parents came to this country and what a flop you are, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so, yeah. And the, and on top of that, my brother just happens to be a carbon copy of my mom. And he dealt with racism very differently, I would say, which made it harder for me in some ways, not that I blame him in any way, but it's like the kids would beat up on him too. But he would respond not by writing poetry and crying in the corner but beating the crap out of them and they're like whoa and they're like he's so cool now (laughs) i should have probably done the same but i i just didn't think to do it you know (laughs) i just was always the feeler um anyway um yeah and hence why he's at google and i'm making minimum wage anyway um 
back to my point, I think that, um, yeah, um, I, I, I really did not have safe spaces to share. And I would say that if I could look back, um, every student that I taught in high school who were struggling, I try to be that person, the space. adult yeah. safe space for them. Yeah. And usually it's not just about making safe space, but it's about distractions. It's about focusing on their strengths. It's about focusing on other good things about life. And because talking about the pain immediately is a bit too much sometimes. And honestly, it is a miracle of God that I survived all that. Um, because high school, middle school, especially during the sexual abuse, I think was the hardest Especially because, like I said, it wasn't like he was, like, brutally hurting me. It was like, I love you. You're very special. Yeah. And don't tell anyone because it's very special between us. Yeah. And yeah. so it was like, why would an 11-year-old, 12-year-old think anything otherwise when someone you utterly respect and trust tells you that, right? Yeah. And then everything about, and then the, the sucky thing about that is that every adult male that you then then tells you that, including your husband, you're like, you're lying to me. You're lying to me, <laughs> you know? And then this ongoing thing where all of your relationships from there on forth are tainted. But, you know, I do believe your past does not have to define you. It's what happened to you. And it, it doesn't have to have power over you the way that it does now. Mm. Um, it, it's not to invalidate how, har har like how, how harmful it is and how hurtful it is now. Like, I'm not trying to deny your pain, yeah. but I'm letting you know that you can get your power back. You know, and I'm not sure if I could have, if I could say that if I hadn't been through um, the intense agony that I have been through with such intense self-hatred. Yeah. What What's striking to me is, I, you know, I know you and, and your husband, James, and I know <laughs> that you've spoken to James about it, um, <laughs> you know, and I, because of, you know, your family didn't talk about serious issues like this. <laughs> how did you even transform the way you communicate in a personal relationship to talk about these things well i mean ne not not quickly by any means i think that you know i talked a little bit about the pandemic how it was kind of a transformative period not because it was kind of like this like it kind of like threw out the floor for all of us but i think also over time i think i saw that i was a leader for a lot of my peers mm. And I saw that in my NAMI groups, NAMI is a National Alliance for Mental Illness, and I've, I've been in, attending that group. A lot of NAMI groups tend to be people, consisting of people who are like family members, parents, supporters of those who struggle with mental illness. But the specific one that I am a part of in Boston, it is purely peers, meaning those who struggle with severe mental health conditions. And it's run by um, my mentor, Eva, who, I mean, she's... She's an educator and, and su former superintendent in Boston herself. So she and I have a lot in common. Um, she became a mother later on in age, and she um, also had a bipolar episode when her child was um, young, um, a couple of months old, like I did. And so, you know, she's a survivor of Auschwitz, um, has a lot of family members who died by suicide. You know, I think from being in this room and being mentored by her, and it's kind of like education, too. I feel like it only takes sometimes one person to see the worth in you, to see the potential in you beyond your scars, to for you to be able to see what they see. Mm. You know what I mean? I like to say that as a Christian, that God is enough. It's like God sees my worth and all that. But for many of us who struggle with severe trauma, 
God does seem like an abstract, even though at the heart of it, you know, that's not true. Mm-hmm. But when, yeah, I mean, it kind of is kind of inconvenient that if you've been abused by a man and you call your God by male pronouns, then it's challenging. But anyway, yeah. um, I would say that... Um, it's like a very slow thing. I just kind of dusted my ass and I was like, Eva, I, I want to learn more about this bipolar condition that I have. Mm. And I took this class that NAMI offers called Peer to Peer. And it's a class that essentially teaches you kind of in depth about um, your mental health condition from p- the peer perspective and not so much mm. the medical model, I guess. Sure. I mean, some of it's medical model, um, but... I would say it's more for the practical day-to-day application stuff. Um, And after I took it, I can't say that I was like, wow, and now I get it. It was kind of more like a seed planted, as is often the case, you know? You've found the passion, and you've listened to that passion to engage in difficult sharing of your own story, which is difficult for lots of people just to share their own story. Yeah, yeah. Um, But you're finding power in that not just for yourself, but I want to serve other people because I've been through these experiences. Yeah. And I think that's the benefit of almost death because um, you really have, you're forced to think about what is your priority in life. Mm. If you're going to die tomorrow and you know, those little tiny quotes, like if you were to die tomorrow, live, you know, today as if it could be your last, like, it's not quite like that. It's more like, God, I could have died in any of those attempts. Why did God save my life? And not to say it was a profound reason, but you think about the value and the preciousness of life very differently. And when you've lost someone to death, whether by suicide or physical illness, you're definitely forced. And I think during this pandemic, all of us had to think about this, like the preciousness of life and how strong we are as humans with all this like advanced technology and medical advances, AI, all that stuff. But yet we're very frail in some ways. Yeah. And so you have to think like we've had it all together this whole time. And then we realize in the pandemic, no, not so much. <laughs> so I don't know. I feel like, yeah, maybe we need, we all needed a little bit of this humbling, yeah. you know? And for me, it was never like, I want to speak up about my truth because it's empowering to me. No, it's like, I feel like it's survival mode still mm. because in some ways, someone needs to hear something. And even if it's like one person who'll never even mention to me that, like, so one example is I shared at one point that I was section 12, which isn't something that you're like, ooh, like you want to show off about that, right. you know? It's <laughs> right. not something that my mom's showing off to her friends about, believe me. You know, but honestly, I just wanted to share that it's okay to not be okay, right? Mm. And usually, you know, some of the typicals reply with supports, and that's fine, whatever. But um, there are a lot of people who don't reply at all, and that's fine, too. And that's not what the postings are for. Like, I'm very well aware that Facebook and other social media uses me, so I use it, you know, and the advantages that I have for it, you know. So, but this one person replied back to me two weeks later. And I'm going to keep that person anonymous. um, But I will say that that person was someone that, I had attended church with for a couple of years, but did not really have a relationship with. Um, wasn't kind of in my circles, mainly because I was struggling with mental health conditions in and out of the hospital, all that jazz. So essentially, they pers- that person rejected me because we happened to be Facebook friends, right? And they said, 
what you said really healed me. And just the fact that you shared what you shared made me feel like my struggles right now, like it's okay to struggle. Mm. And I actually wrote a song in response to mm. like you sharing that because it really inspired me to get back into my creativity again. And I was like, wow, wow, that's amazing. You usually don't get that kind of response even yeah. from one person. But it is like, just like seeds are planted in me, I have to assume that seeds are being planted in other people and I will never see any of those seeds, you know? And it's not about seeing them, but it's really more about trusting that God is going to do the healing work in his own time, in his own way. And honestly, like, yeah, I feel like if we get so, you know, struggle with hubris to the point that we think that we are the healers and that we are going to be able to like train enough and know enough about, you know, harm reduction and, you know, crisis intervention, all that stuff that we can actually heal others. We're really, you know, blinding ourselves. We can see very clearly in situations of the opioid pen, you know, epidemic and mass and cast and all that, that we have plenty of resources. We have plenty of money to go and do the good deeds. But are we essentially healing any of that? I would say not so much. Right, right. You know, your story is so powerful, you know, because you're finding strength within your own stories. And so, you know, for people, I'm just wondering if you have thoughts or advice, if what do you think are one or two behaviors that would be the most impactful for people to find that strength in their own story, to share that, to take ownership of their story? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'll, I'll just share honestly that one of my big passions is finding hope, finding your own voice. There's really nothing more in it for me than to really try to make this world a kinder place. Um, I want, the, the hope that I see is when I look into my son's eyes and see the joy that he has in life and wanting that for as many people as possible. Surely I can protect him from the world and he's going to have to fend for himself one day. And at the same time, I love that innocence, probably because I didn't have it so much as a child, but I think that really God did intend for us to feel safe. Um, not to be like safe in the sense of like never facing adversities, but safe in the sense of like, I feel safe enough to be myself. I feel safe that I can go out on a limb and say something uncomfortable to you because I care about you. You know, I feel safe enough to do something that takes a little more courage, even though I'm terrified. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And all of us are terrified if we really like are honest about it. I mean, the thing I realized, I think the more I talk to more people and they're listening to their stories is all of us have quite, a, you know, a decent amount of trauma to some level, mm. it def depending on how you define trauma, yep. right? All of us have, have been through hard shit. Sorry, Kirsty. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Okay. So like, essentially, it's like some of us are hiding it better than others. Some of us are, you know, like putting on the makeup better than others. But it's like, why can't we at least be present for each other in safe ways? where we can allow each other to heal by just being present for one another, mm. right? Mm. I mean, it's like there aren't enough therapists to go around, you know? That's for sure. I, yeah. I love that mindset. You know, one is, you know, thinking long-term, what's the, what's the purpose? What's the vision? What are you trying to create for the world? Yeah. And then how can we be there for each other? 
Yeah. I think that's a powerful yeah. thing to consider. How can we be there for each other in a way yeah. that's healing? Yeah. Right. Cause we're all going yeah. through stuff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think that we, you know, if anything I learned in this field of racial reconciliation, like, you know, equity, social equity, all this stuff, mental health, social, you know, suicide prevention, we cannot do it alone. No one person, no, no matter, even, you know, Dr. King, you know, some of the Greeks, you know, RBG, like, you know, all of us require a village in a sense, mm. you know, we yeah. work and join those who are also out in those front lines. And you know what? It can be something different for everybody. It doesn't mean that you're picketing and doing those anti-whatevers, but it sometimes means you're, you're home, nursing your child, and just, like, listening to another mom just mm. cry over a really real situation. Yeah. You're being present and human for someone. That is really powerful. Sometimes it means that you're just, like, you know, submitting your, you know, credit card number and donating to a cause that will help others we're out in the front lines, you know, like it can be so many different things as far as how you contribute, you know, to the cause of greater kindness in this world. And some people call it equity and all that stuff. I try, try not to use jargon because I always think of my friends who are those closet conservatives who just, you know what, it's like, let's look into ourselves too. It's like, we always kind of point the finger and say, well, you know, look what's happened with abortion and blah, blah, blah. But honestly, I mean, I really love RBG, you know, G's like, quote, you know, pursue the work that you're passionate about, but do it in a way that allows others to join you. Mm. And I think the greatest fault of the liberals have, you know, been to alienate conservatives from the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. I love that quote. I never heard that before, but now I'm going to use yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give it to you for real. It's actually fight for the things that you care about. But do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, I love it. Heidi Lee, I love talking to you. I'm humbled that you even felt comfortable to share this with me. I'm so thankful and I'm, I loved hearing your story. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you, Chris, for giving me this opportunity. Yeah. Is there any work you'd love the spotlight to bring attention to? Oh, gosh. Well, at, that, at this time, I, I talked a little bit to you about... Um, Napian, it's like, why isn't, you know, healthcare is like, everything is like acronyms. But anyway, um, Napian is an organization that is specifically catered towards Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, um, who, it's a peer network. So anyone who identifies themselves as someone who struggles with mental health conditions, it's a place where we can share, you know, stories safely. Mm. It's, a, it's a space where it's a, it's a group led by people who identify as struggling with mental health conditions and you know what there is kind of like a openness to how you you know i think that asian americans you can be the spouse of someone who's asian american you can be someone who has children who's asian american um we let you define that but you know i would say we we did try to be very firm about making it a safe space for anyone who um, can share their stories about their mental health experiences and for it to be hopefully as healing space for them. So that is in the works so much. So in the beginning phases that we don't even quite have a website yet, but it's N A A P I E N. Don't ask me what that stands for, but it's, a, it's for Asian Americans and anyone identifying. And for those to really be able to come together and be maybe, um, what do you call it? An adoptive, what do you call it? 
not a family, not a blood family, but what do you call them when you're a family that a chosen family, chosen family right? Yeah, yeah. Chosen family. Yes. Yeah. Do you, how can people get connected if there are, if they are interested, is there a number to call? Is there somewhere to email? Yeah, I would say, um, that, you know, you can directly email me because I can send you the invite because you're, because we're in the in initial phases, I wish I can just give you a website. Uh, maybe you can find it online at this point. We're still creating the logo and such, but if you email me directly, I'm so happy to, um, connect you and might even invite you to become part of the steering committee. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. but it's, um h-e-i-d-i dot h-j dot l-e-e at gmail.com yeah and i'll put that in the description too so people can see it easily <laughs> great um well heidi thank you so much i'd love to continue the conversation in the future as well yes i'm excited to see how you're i want to again express my appreciation to heidi for sharing her story it's not easy to share our stories in any circumstance especially one where there's been lots of ups and downs so I really appreciate and thank you to Heidi. Please tune in next week when I'm going to talk about when you're in difficult conversations, why it's important to get good at asking good questions. So see you next week.